0: and glorified here this morning. We pray that Christ would be known to be treasured and to be a great Savior. Lord, would you introduce him to people that may not know you this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, Adam Ronning is an average 34-year-old father who lives in Minneapolis. However, two years ago, his life was dramatically changed. He was resurrected from the dead. You see, in 1987, when he was only four years old, his mother had remarried, uh, had um, uh, moved into a new residence, and for whatever reason, the Internal Revenue Service had tagged him as deceased. And so for 26 uh, 26 years of his life, he didn't exist. Uh, he, uh, because of this, his mother could not receive child support. He was unable to secure any loans. He wasn't even able to get a bank account with any uh, local bank. And the IRS simply chalked this up as a computer glitch. But yet, uh, looking at the stats, we, we found out that in 2011 alone, the IRS was responsible for putting 1,000 people a month as deceased when they were not. That's 12,000 people a year. Now, let's give them a little bit of credit. They've done a little bit better. Now they only uh, falsely put about 500 American citizens as deceased, uh, making it only about 6,000, but at least we're going in the right direction. And usually to reverse this, it's a simple procedure that uh, it's just a notification to the IRS and some paperwork, and it's fine. But for whatever reason, uh, uh, for Ronning, it took an email to the IRS commissioner from Senator Amy Klobuchar in order to reverse this. And though the situation was reversed, he actually is currently waiting for an official document from the United States government that is officially called a Certificate of Resurrection. It's a document that his mother had been waiting for for years but had never been able to, to secure. You know, it's, been, it's one thing to be fully alive, but be declared by your government. Uh, to be dead by your government, I should say. It's another thing altogether to be physically dead and yet rise from that state. It's not hard to believe that the government would screw something up to this extent of calling someone deceased when they are not, it is much harder to believe that someone that you personally saw executed three days ago would be appearing to people. For two men who are walking on a long road home from Jerusalem uh, after the Passover, this was their, their reality. And understandably, they didn't believe it. So here are two men that had placed their total hope, they had placed their total trust in this Galilean rabbi, but yet he was placed in a tomb after a vicious execution. This is one that they they hoped would redeem them from their troubles, that would restore their nation to their ideals yet he was dead. To add insult to injury, they hear rumors that he is actually alive, that his tomb was empty, that that angels had testified to his resurrection. And how in the world could this be true? It just seems like well-meaning fiction. And instead of bringing hope, it rather just brings an awful lot of hurt as they're making their way down the road. Yet as these men are taking this long, sad journey home, they encounter the resurrected Jesus, and their lives are suddenly not the same anymore. You know, that's how it is. When we encounter Jesus Christ, our lives are not the same anymore. This morning, I want to challenge you to meet Jesus On Whatever road of life That you are currently on Maybe you're here this morning And you need some encouragement uh, Because you are facing some difficulties Maybe you're here this morning uh, Because mom or grandma asked you to And you just wanted to be nice But here you are Maybe you are just checking this Jesus thing out and, And seeing whether or not it offers anything And if it's real Maybe you're here today And you know that some things need to change, that your life needs to get turned around, and you're just not exactly sure how that happens. Jesus has risen, and he meets you in whatever situation you find yourself in this morning. But in order to experience this change, we must encounter the real resurrected Jesus, and we do that in three ways. The first is that we must know the gospel. We must know the gospel. Now, what do we mean when we say the gospel? It's a word that here at Emmanuel, we kind of toss out there quite a bit. You'll hear it in Christian circles. They throw out the word gospel uh, quite a bit. You'll hear it in our culture, but it's helpful to define it as we look into this passage, because if we can understand what the gospel is, we can not only understand what Easter is truly about, but we understand the essence of Christianity. What is Christianity all about? And it's all wrapped up in this word gospel. Many of us think that the word gospel is just this superlative term that we tag on uh, before the word truth, to make it sound like whatever we're trying to say is more believable or more truthful, because we put gospel in front of it. Well, what I'm telling you is the gospel truth. Oh, this is gospel. This is this is what I am telling you. But that is not what gospel means. In Koine Greek, which is the uh, the form of Greek that the New Testament and the Bible was was written in, uh, the word gospel literally means good news. So, for example, if there was a Roman general or a Roman army that had won a major battle on some foreign field and they wanted their, their hometown crowd to know about it, they would send a messenger before them proclaiming a gospel, a gospel of victory, a good news of victory. And as Christians, we use this term very specifically when we say the gospel. We mention, uh, we, we talk about the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Now, what's interesting is that in in the gospel of Luke, verses 23 through 24, we have two men here that clearly understand and are are talking about the facts of the gospel, but yet it hasn't sunk in. It's not yet good news. It's not yet gospel to them. Uh, Read with me here, starting in verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, now push pause here for a second, there's the evidence that they didn't get it yet. They're arguing about this. Is this true? Is it not? And they're having this discussion. Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then they asked him, he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. You can just imagine the look that they give Jesus here. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened in these days? Okay, so the crucifixion of Jesus was such a big deal in Jerusalem at that time that you would have had to have been a hermit without a cell phone, a smartphone, to know that this event did not happen in Jerusalem. And so he pretty much asks them, Where have you been? Who are you? Have you had your head under a rock for the past three days? Look in verse 19. What things, he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests, the leaders, handed him him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us, They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported so that they had had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So notice three crucial facts here that this gentleman uh, espouses to us. First, Jesus was a powerful person in word and deed. And uh, we know from other gospel accounts and throughout the New Testament that what this translates to is that Jesus was God in the flesh. That he was both truly God and he was truly man. That in his earthly ministry, he was completely sinless. He had no record of wrong. And being God himself, he was able to perform miracles. Second, Cleopas tells us that he was handed over and sentenced to death. Now, the gospel records show, and also if you are a student of history, there are secular historians, uh, specifically a guy named Tacitus, and also a guy named Josephus, that have recorded that there was indeed a man named Jesus who had a huge following around the time that Jesus was crucified, that he was executed by the Roman government for doing these great deeds. And that he was crucified for being a threat to the Jewish establishment. He was completely innocent, but yet he was executed. So what the world here sees as A matter of injustice, the Bible tells us that in Acts chapter 2 verse 31, it says that he was delivered, Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. But why would this be? Was was God some sort of cosmic uh, child abuser? I don't think so. I think that Jesus as the Son of God was the only acceptable substitute for us, that as he hung on the cross, he was absorbing the wrath of God on sin that we deserved. Every word, every thought, every deed that we've ever committed, Jesus took the punishment for us on our behalf. And in his death, the wrath of God was fully satisfied. And through faith, we can not only be freed from every stain from sin in God's sight, but we are also given all of Jesus' goodness. All of his record of right is attributed to us. It's his righteousness. But his death would have absolutely no sticking power without the resurrection. So, third, Cleopas tells us that the tomb was empty. Now, it's it's understandable why these two would be in, in disbelief. People don't rise from the dead unless the IRS declares them dead and they reverse that. But could there have been a body snatcher? Not likely, because the tomb was heavily guarded by some soldiers could these women that visited the tomb, could they have been delusional? Well, that's certainly possible, but not if they both have the exact same experience and that their story stays straight. The only explanation is that Jesus truly rose from the grave. And this is being truly alive. He's not some half-life Divine zombie that is just walking around. Here is Jesus, the Bible tells us, in his resurrection, appeared fully ambulatory, appearing to 500 people, eating and drinking with his disciples. There's no better evidence for the resurrection than the fact that these disciples that he spent all this time with, that he showed himself to after the resurrection, that they went and gave their very lives for this truth of the resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but there's no sane person that would want to go in and be martyred for a belief that they willingly know is a lie. These men knew the truth that Jesus had been raised. So why is that important? Well, it's important because if Jesus stayed dead, then all we would have is forgiveness of our sins, but not much hope for the present and certainly not much hope for the future. We would have forgiveness, but we'd have no power to defeat the sin in our lives as we continue moving forward. But since Jesus rose, he proved that he has ultimate victory over sin and victory over death. It is because of his resurrection that you and I can have new life. It's because Jesus has defeated sin that we can have our lives turned around, not in our power, but by the power of Jesus. His resurrection paved the way for us who are in Christ to one day, after we leave this earth, to be resurrected again in a manner as he was resurrected. Friends, this is the gospel that you and I, apart from God, are dead in our sin and our trespasses, can be made alive again because Jesus lived sinlessly, because he died substitutionally, and he was raised victoriously. You who are completely unable to change your lot in life, you who are completely unable to be good enough to save yourself, Jesus has come and makes you the object Of his love, the object of his care, that regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what you've done, he has loved you enough to go to the cross and be raised again so that you can experience the newness of life. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The question is, do you believe it? This gospel that we are to know is completely ineffective unless we have trust in what Jesus has done for us. And that leads us to our second point— is that not only do we need to know it, we need to believe it. Another word for that is trust in it. You know, our culture does a lot of talking about belief. Well, believe in yourself and you can achieve anything. Really? Well, if I believe that I can fly, should I just jump off a cliff and see how that works? Oftentimes, when we're unsure about the direction of a situation, we, we uh, just toss out the phrase, just have faith. At the last church that I was a pastor at Our church was located uh, down the street from the high school And there was this house that was kitty corner from the church That they would always take styrofoam cups and write words In in the the fence to encourage people or whatever And our, our town was going for the state championship in basketball And across the whole fence it said Believe and you will achieve I don't think they won that year, did they? Well, what does that mean if you just simply believe you're going to win the state championship? Cleveland Browns have been believing for years, and they haven't done much. But what does that mean? Faith in what? Faith that'll work out? Faith in fate? Maybe instead of using this term faith, maybe we should really say what it actually means. It's just think positively about something. As Christians, we don't look at belief in the same way. We don't look at faith and belief in the same way that we tell our children to believe in the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. For Christians, it's not well-wishing. You know, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament defines faith like this. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. So in other words, for Christians, Faith is trusting in what's already reality, regardless if we see it with our eyes or not. And that reality is what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Now, we see the lights kind of click on in these guys' minds here, starting in verse 25. Now, remember, they don't know that they're walking with Jesus, and they think that he's some kind of kook for not having a clue about all these events, major events that just happened in their town, now verse twenty-five, he said to them, "How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken? Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them for uh, for them the things concerning himself." in all the scriptures. Now let's push pause there for just a second. Jesus rebukes these two guys for their unbelief. It's an unbelief that's basically born of ignorance because they had been reading uh, their, their, their Bibles wrong. Their Bibles at this point was what we know of as the Old Testament. And to them, they see it just as a book of rules. They see it as just a bunch of moralistic stories by which they can, uh, they can learn how to live rightly within a Jewish community. It's not as if they didn't believe that it's God's word. They just weren't interpreting it correctly. They weren't connecting the dots. You know, we live in what, uh, what cultural analysts call postmodernism, which I would believe that we're kind of philosophically coming away from postmodernism a bit. But what postmodernism is, it is the view that there's absolutely no absolute truth, if that that can logically even make sense. What's true for you might not be true for me, and what's true for me might not necessarily be true for you, and and that's just perfectly good. This mindset bleeds into the church, and you'll hear people say something like, yeah, I, I, I see that passage you're reading, but you know what? That's just your interpretation of it. Which is another way of saying, what's right for you isn't right for me. What you believe is true isn't isn't necessarily true for me. However, Jesus tells us implicitly in this passage that we are not at liberty to hold such a view when it comes to God's word. Notice what Jesus said, what it says here about Jesus, that he interpreted the things concerning himself in some of the scriptures. No, it says all of the scriptures. So in other words, if you've never understood the Bible before, every page, every word, every story in the Bible whispers Jesus' name It points to his life, it points to his death, it points to his resurrection, and it points to his second coming. If there are moral lessons that we can learn from the Bible, it is this, that we are spiritually and morally bankrupt and we can do nothing about it, but there was one who was powerful and came to do it. It was Jesus. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, what God gave to Abraham. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the suffering servant in Isaiah. Jesus is the king of glory in the Psalms. Jesus is the lamb of God that was foreshadowed in the uh, sacrificial system. Jesus is the great high priest after a guy named Melchizedek early in the Old Testament. This is the point about uh, the point of the Bible. It is all about Jesus and what he has done for you and for me. And we see this good news when we look in the pages of his word. Now look in verse 28 with me. They came near a village where they were going and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. They recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So it's one thing to know a lot about Jesus. It's one thing to interpret the scriptures that point to him. But how does one make the leap then from knowledge to faith? I'm not sure that we can necessarily define that theologically. However, we do see something here in this uh, passage about what happened to these guys. Notice that they had spent all day with Jesus, and they didn't get it. That they had walked with him down this long road, And they didn't get it. They had been taught by him walking through the scriptures. But it wasn't until they experienced him that their eyes were opened and their lives changed. It wasn't until Jesus made himself known to them and initiated a relationship with them through the breaking of the bread, which is another way of saying uh, initiated fellowship, a relationship with them, that they finally got it. And you may be here today, and you may feel like you have screwed up so bad, and in such a big way, that there's absolutely no way that God would want anything to do with you. You may be here this morning and feel that your past is way too shady for God to forgive or even want a relationship with. You may feel shame for that thing that you did all those years ago, and it is so dark that God couldn't possibly look at you as his child. The cross, friends, is proof that God is willing to go to the most extreme length to rescue you. He broke the bread of Jesus so that we can experience his grace. And we can tell when we're getting close to this experience with Jesus in what these two men did in verse 32. Look with me. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? So faith is this burning of the heart. It is this relief from the burden of all of our sin and all of our mistakes and maybe the guilt and shame that we have weighing on our shoulders. It is this weight off of our shoulders because our hurts and our failures can no longer get the best of us. Faith is a joy because we can have a relationship with the one who created us, who loves us, and that will absolutely never end. It goes beyond the grave throughout eternity, and it is all yours through faith trust in christ and what he has done for you so we must know the gospel we must believe the gospel and finally we need to share the gospel when something changes your life the natural thing to do is to tell other people about it that new product that dramatically changes the way that you clean your house or cleans your dishes or whatever, you want to tell your friends about it. That new app that you got on your phone that, that dramatically makes you more productive, at least for a week until you forget about it, you want to tell people about how great it is. You know, maybe it's even telling the story of your wedding or your engagement or maybe the birth of one of your, your children. You know, there's nothing more radically life-changing than knowing Jesus. So the natural thing for us to do then is to go and shout it from the rooftop, right? For many of us, that's not the case. For many of us, for whatever reason, we want our faith to be private. That other people shouldn't know about it. And that may have something to do with fear. We don't want other people to, to, to think that we're Jesus freaks or we may not want people to mistake trusting in Jesus for some political leaning. But if we've encountered our faith and if we've encountered Jesus and we placed our faith in him, we get to live out the gospel In both action and in word. And that's exactly what we see these two men doing here in verses 33 through 35. It says, That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together, who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So these men provide a great example of how to tell others about Jesus. It's not always about a program. It's not always about going through a track. It's not always about having a memorized speech. Sometimes the best witness that you can give people about the goodness of Jesus is telling them about what he's done in your life. That you once had a life that was a struggle and maybe Christ brought you through it. Maybe you are in a season of suffering right now where most people would be at their wit's end but Jesus has given you peace. He has given you hope. He has given you strength. That's a powerful witness to the gospel's uh, testimony. And when people see how Jesus has changed us, the more receptive about hearing what he has done for them they could be so know the gospel believe the gospel and share the gospel friends this is the Christian life now I don't know where you are at today but I know that Jesus is ready willing and able to change your life Maybe you've been struggling in some way in your life. Jesus is ready to comfort you. Maybe you've been stuck in some recurring sin. Jesus is ready to forgive you and help you through it. Maybe you feel that you've made shipwreck of your life. Jesus is ready to pick up the pieces for you and start building it back up again. Maybe you're here this morning and you are mentally, physically, spiritually exhausted. Jesus is ready, willing, and able to give you rest. Maybe you've been running from Jesus for a long time, and it's time to come home. Jesus is ready to welcome you with open arms, just as he did on the cross. So if that's you today, and maybe you see where you're going and where you should be, you can receive Jesus today through faith. And if that's you, I'm going to pray here in just a moment, and I want to invite you to bow your head and pray with me and receive Jesus. And if that's you today, we'd like to know about it. If you still have that comment card or some sort of way to let us know that you've made Jesus your Lord and Savior today, we want to rejoice with you and help you start your walk with Christ. Would you all bow your heads with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I am exhausted. I cannot keep living the way that I have. Lord, I know that things in my life need to change, and I recognize that I am completely powerless to do anything about them. Yet, Lord, what I've heard today about Jesus makes sense, and I want to put my trust in him. I repent, I turn from my sin, and Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, forgive my sins through his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, I give you my joys, I give you my sorrows. I give you my troubles. I give you my triumphs. Lord, I indeed give you my entire life. Thank you for making me your child today. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I'm going to invite you to stand with us and sing a song of, uh, of response for who Jesus is what he's about and what he has done for us in this great gospel that we have
1: let's sing this
0: these words from Jude if you've been stumbling and want relief in your spiritual life. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Have a blessed resurrected sun resurrection Sunday.